episode of our year-long adventure uh, we like to call the alternate 100 um we finally made it to the end ed yeah we did uh after a lot of planning probably too much planning mm-hmm. <laughs> i think we probably could have started three months earlier but we just tinkered with the list enough to, to make it as perfect as possible and i think we we came close yeah, yeah, we uh, we did come mighty, mighty close. Um, you already know the rules by now. Um, this is our last ten films, and uh, sadly, this is the last time we're going to hear the jingle. So uh, let's be having it. The alternate one hundred. Okay, uh, let's leap straight in. Uh, the first film of our last ten. Um, is a little film called Primer. But I think it would do little good. Because what the world remembers, the actuality, the last revision is what counts apparently. So how many times did it take Aaron as he cycled through the same conversations, lip-syncing trivia over and over? How many times would it take before he got it right? Three, four, 20. Uh, Primer is one of those films uh, that that is kind of talked about um, quite often because of how little it cost uh, Shane Carruth, uh, a kind of one-man dynamo behind this film, uh, threw it together for $7,000, which is crazy. Uh, even more crazy is just how good the film is. Yeah, I mean, when we did our episode where we talked about um, science fiction films uh, recently, I think that one is, is kind of the... We, we didn't talk about Primer much because we knew we'd be talking about it on this episode but it is kind of the ultimate example of a low-budget film that has incredibly big, complex ideas uh, that realises them with the the uh, most kind of minuscule of tools because, you know, it costs something like $5,000. I think if you break the budget down, most of that is on the film itself, <laughs> the actual mm. celluloid. Uh, so uh, that's the uh, the wet, how much of a, a low-budget marginal, uh, a la- low-budget marvel primer is yeah and if you kind of think about the 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 highest cost was on film stock and you know legend has it that they shot a uh, ratio of two to one anyone doesn't understand what that means it means that for every two takes they shot they used one of them so they used 50 percent of the film they shot which is insane a normal film will shoot five or six maybe even seven to one and that's just a normal film that Mm. nothing goes wrong with uh, you know, a big action film will probably shoot, you know, 10 or 15 to 1. Um, so the economy and the skill that it took to do that is is crazy. And, and uh, thinking about um, the fact that uh, Shane Carruth did pretty much everything on that film. He plays the lead role, he wrote it, he directed it, he shot it, he scored it, he edited it. Um, and it's not really a film that's kind of light on detail. It's a film that's incredibly complex. Uh, it's a, a time travel movie. The most kind of uh, scientifically uh, worked through um, time travel film you'll ever watch. Lots of attention to detail played to the specifics of how this would work and it kind of creates a form of time travel that you've never seen before in a film. 
uh, basically people just go into a box and they wake up at a time in the past and they create incredibly complicated feedback loops on themselves and the film goes from a, a, a fairly simple concept you know everyone's seen a time travel film everyone understands the basic idea and then layers on so much complexity that it becomes uh completely uh well not impossible to follow but it does become uh just kind of mind-bending in the best possible way mm, i i've seen it maybe three or four times mm. And I'll admit, I still don't a hundred percent know how it all works because it is very dense and technical, and it doesn't offer you any kind of explanation, which is very cool. And I like that. I don't like it when you kind of spoon-fed information. But what we are talking about is a kind of like level of—is um, it particle physics or like quantum physics? Yeah, quantum. Or it's, it's physics of some kind mm-hmm. um, that you, you you might need a few letters after your name to properly understand. Yeah, I think it's a great testament to the work that Caruth uh, did in that if you look at Primer on like YouTube, as I was earlier today, looking for clips, you are more likely to find videos of people explaining Primer or trying to explain Primer in very minute and incredible detail than you are actual clips of the film. I think it's a film that uh, has a very obsessive uh, fan base, which it, it earns through you know its its intelligence, which... Uh, it's not something you can say about a lot of films. Mm. And he's um, a kind of a, a complex figure. Uh, he, he returned uh, last year with a film called Upstream Colour, which we included in our uh, 10 best films of, of the year last year. Um, but he, he's not really someone who's in a, in a dreadful hurry to kind of follow up his work. And whatever he does is seems to be kind of shrouded in mystery. Yeah, to the extent that I think when we were in a very early episode of this show, we were talking about people we wanted to see back. And Shane Cook, mm. I believe, was the one that you kind of pointed to as someone you wanted to see make a second film because you were just kind of thinking, what the hell would this guy do? And he came mm-hmm. back with a film that none of us could have predicted. <laughs> um, uh, you know, Upstream Cover Colors is radically different to Prime in a lot of ways. Um, their only real connection is they don't make any concessions to the audience. And I think that's what's so exciting is it's it, because he's someone who works with very, very low budgets and doesn't seem to have any interest in working within sort of mainstream Hollywood, except for that time he consulted on Looper, um, mm-hmm. which even then is probably not super mainstream. Um, mm, it's not Transformers 3, is it? No. So uh, he, because he, he's placed himself so far outside of that world, uh, he doesn't feel, he clearly doesn't compromise on his work and makes only makes the films he wants to, to make. Mm, yeah, very uncompromising, and um, you know, like you say, he. I think again, there's a bit of a mystery about how he came up with the funding for um, Upstream Color, but he's just doing it how he's doing it. And if you're going to have full, complete creative control, then you just want to do it how you want to do it. And he doesn't seem to be someone who's likely to take uh, the corporate dollar for a, for a paycheck, even though you know there's probably a, quite a lot of people who want to work with him. Um, what's interesting is that when Ryan Johnson was announced for uh, Star Wars Episode Eight. I immediately started uh, kind of banging the drum for Shane Carruth for <laughs> Episode Nine, which would be the weirdest kind of. Well, it would be the the end to the Star Wars saga. <laughs> well, it certainly wouldn't. You know, even if they had more films planned, I think Shane Carruth would kill it all with like a mystery kind of film about a virus carried by pigs. Yeah, I think that they should definitely give him at least one of those spin-off ones they've announced, the ones that yeah. don't tie into the main storyline. 
I think if you're going to get weird with Star Wars, I think Shane Carruth and a non-main Star Star Wars film seems the right way to go. Yeah, a uh, salacious crumb. Uh, <laughs> Shane Carruth prequel. Um, uh, and if that happens, I want some fucking money. If Shane Carruth has travelled back through time to put that idea in my head, uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, Primer, a, a wonderful example of science fiction filmmaking. Um, and, oh, hello, segue. Here's another example of wonderful science fiction filmmaking, another film that we were biting our tongues not to mention on the uh, sci-fi episode we did a few weeks ago. We're talking about Silent Running. Cataclysm in outer space. Every moment bringing its own danger as man explores the mysteries of an unknown and limitless universe. Valley Forge, Valley Forge, what the hell's wrong? You're moving out, you're accelerating. I've got a premature detonation on dome number two and I've got an explosion in the main cargo deck. Now please advise me immediately. Give me Barker. I can't find Barker. I can't find Wolfram Keenan either. I'm afraid, Neil, that they might have been in dome number two. Uh, yeah, Silent Running, kind of a, a bit of a oddity uh, in the sense that, well, it's quite odd anyway. It's, it's a science fiction film in the 70s um, about a time where all plant life on Earth is extinct and what remaining plant life there is is floating in giant domes in spaceships in deep space and looked after by kind of like gardeners and robots. Um, and Silent Running is a film uh, which is kind of notable because it was directed by uh, Douglas Trumbull, who is most kind of widely known as a special effects uh, artist. He kind of works on 2001 and, and quite a lot of other stuff. Um, but for a film made by a special effects guy, um, which you'd expect to be uh, kind of focused more heavily on special effects and perhaps not on um, the story or the acting or anything, it's a film with an awful lot of heart. Yeah, I mean, like you say, uh, Trumbull worked on 2001 and I think he said that Silent Running was his attempt to make a more human story than uh, 2001, because 2001, for all its many kind of great, uh, its great uh, positives and its great strengths, is kind of a very, is in a lot of ways, a very cold film and a very clinical film. And I think that you can really see that in in Silent Running, because it's film, a film kind of driven by uh, a, a very 60s kind of uh, hippie-ish idealism that uh, you mm. definitely don't see in, in 2001, that you do see in a lot of science fiction films from that era, but I don't think expressed quite so, uh, kind of in quite such a melancholy way as you do in Silent Running. Yeah. Um, he only directed one on the film, um, which I find odd given Silent Running is so distinct and, uh, you know, kind of so well-loved. Yeah, I guess it, it, it was a film that... I think it's probably its reputation has grown a lot over the years. Maybe wasn't a huge hit out of the box, but also he's someone who's so in demand as someone doing special effects work. So even today, you know, recently he was involved with doing uh, Terence Malick's Tree of Life. He was involved in a lot of the kind of space sequences there, or the kind of galaxy, both the galaxy sequences. And you know, when you're in demand for that sort of thing, it's probably quite difficult to convince people to let you make your own films yeah i always kind of thought it was nice to see um kind of bruce dern making a bit of a comeback in the last few years um because silent running is probably one of his kind of signature roles mm. yeah it's it's definitely one of the ones in which his that his persona of that time which is a kind of 
exemplar of the kind of 60s burnout, you know, the guy who was really into the flower power sort of thing, but had kind of, but whose ideology is, uh, or idealism has kind of curdled a bit, really suits the idea of a guy who has committed his whole life to preserving plant life and who believes that it's kind of important for the future survival of humanity, who, when told that that's not going to happen and that they're going to destroy all the plants, kind of goes mad and decides mm. that he's going to use it to, he's going to just go rogue with it. Uh, that, that feels very much like the film is is commenting on, whether intentionally or otherwise, the way that that kind of idealism of the 60s was going to curdle in the, uh, in the 1970s. I think if you, people wanted this to be more successful, because like you say, it kind of slipped away on original release and kind of its its reputation grew as as it as it kind of uh, as time went on. Rogue Space Gardener would have been a better title. <laughs> Definitely could have been the Japanese title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um I see those Polish movie posters with like the really weird translations. Mm. Rogue Space Gardener um would be pretty good. Um also kind of uh, features uh cinema's three most lovable robots. Yes, you named Huey, Dewey and Louie. Mm-hmm. Uh, after of course uh, Scrooge McDuck and Donald Duck's nephew. Uh, you know, their their delightful little boxy designs uh, just go about doing their job very clearly. Uh, an influence on something like Warly from a couple of years ago had the same sort mm. of thing, where they're very functional, but there's a kind of acuteness to them. Yeah, if people are looking for a kind of companion piece um, to this, I'd recommend something like John Carpenter's Dark Star. Oh, definitely. That kind of fits very much into that kind of like uh, counterculture, kind of hippie vibe sci-fi. Um, very much practical effects. Um, very much hasn't dated either, even though Dark Star really should have done because it was a student film, event, essentially. Yeah, and also it's very interesting in terms of uh, the, the work that uh, the people involved with Dark Star would go on to make, specifically Dan O'Bannon, who co-wrote it. And if you mm-hmm. know his subsequent work, it's very easy to watch Dark Star and think, there's a lot of plot points in this that are pretty similar to ones in Alien. <laughs> yeah, except that the the alien in Dark Star is not quite as terrifying as the Xenomorph. Mm, yeah, absolutely. well, yeah, it's a space hopper with a pair of slippers stuck to the bottom. That's probably why. Anyway, it's not distracted <laughs> uh, by Dark Star as good as Dark Star is. Um, Silent Running is a film we've chosen on this list. Uh, it, it, I think it probably would have been one of those two, mm. uh, either or. Um, they're both great, but Silent Running is marginally better, according to us. So. Suck it, John Carpenter. Although he's already got quite a few films on this list, so, you know, he's all right. So, yeah, Silent Running. Our next film um, is uh, kind of a little bit of an underappreciated gem uh, from that era we like to talk about as the 70s. Um, We're talking about Arthur Penn's Night Moves. I think Harry would like me to leave. I don't think that's necessary. I think Harry thinks it is. Harry thinks if you call him Harry one more time, he's going to make you eat that cat. Gene Hackman. Is Harry Mosby. Hello, Harry. In Night Moves. Well, come on, take a swing at me, Harry, the way Sam Spade would. He's a private investigator. Can I draw to Delhi? Would you believe Delilah? Well, she's gone. How long gone? Two weeks. Go find her. Making a living. Well, let's say 125 a day in legitimate expenses. From other people's lives. You can get cheaper. Can I get better? You're hired. Making a mess of his own. Now, not 
a lot of people will kind of think of Night Moves as one of the key films of of that kind of time period, and they're probably right. It's kind of slipped through the cracks. People don't really kind of seem to remember it. It's not widely available on DVD outside of America. Um, but in terms of being a kind of a distinctive film, it really is. We had the gangster film revisited by The Godfather, things, the war film. It was kind of, uh, you know, Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now. But uh, the neo-noir kind of thread that came out of that with things like Chinatown, um, kind of whilst they added a 70s kind of paranoid spin to things, um, they kind of still stayed within the kind of tropes of noir, whereas Night Moves is a rare beast. It's a film noir in which like the characters are real people. Yes, the real people who are completely baffled by the situation around them. And mm. uh, a detective played by, or a detective kind of archetype, played by uh, Gene Hackman, who really has no clue what he's gotten involved in to the extent that he completely misunderstands the kind of story that's happening. Um, yeah, and he's kind of uh, primarily distracted by the fact that his wife is having an affair. Um, he's, like you say, he's taken on a case that he doesn't really understand. He, he kind of misunderstands what the case is in the first place. It's kind of a missing person's case that kind of uh, unfolds to be something much worse. But unlike in other uh, film noirs or detective stories, he's so far behind the pace. <laughs> um, probably got something to do with the fact that he is not a kind of fast-talking um, kind of private dick. He is an ex-American footballer. Yeah, he's he's kind of a, a very different to uh, most detective in films because he, he's not intelligent in the kind of the Nick and Nora Charles kind of way, you know, the, the sort of guy who's just kind of doing it, kind of a dilettante who's dabbling in it, but he's also doesn't really seem to have much in the way of street smarts. He kind of, it kind mm. of feels like the sort of person who I think is, this is probably true of a lot of real life detectives in, in the real world, people who just kind of fall into it because nothing else really works out for them. And uh, they kind of get these kind of slightly skeezy, Cases like his one where it's a missing person's case, and there's kind of a sense that the, the person he's looking for is a young girl, and maybe there's kind of underage sex involved, but he's not really certain. And it's it's really not a uh, kind of a prestigious line of work that he's in, and uh, you don't get the sense that he's actually particularly good at it. Mm, yeah, he's kind of um, a very kind of grubby film as well, isn't it? There's a lot of kind of like low level things happening, and, and kind of uh, skullduggery, especially with. Uh, there's kind of James character, uh, sorry James Woods's character mm. is a kind of mechanic on movie sets, and there's no kind of like uh, really elaborate murder plotting. It's all very much kind of crimes of uh, of kind of uh, not circumstance, I guess, but trying people trying to take advantage of other people, and the whole thing kind of unfolds at that kind of uh, pace at which kind of like a bar fight unfolds. <laughs> yeah, very very slowly spiralling out to involve more people. Uh, yeah. I think you, you, you're you're completely right in the idea that it's it's a detective film in which everyone acts like real people, which is that everyone is kind of dumb. Um, there's kind of a crime has occurred, but not everyone's sure who knows about the crime, and people are trying to cover it up, but uh, who probably don't need to start covering up <laughs> and kind of exposing areas of the crime uh, just through the act of covering it up and things like that. And it's just a yeah, it's a really fascinating and really you know from the point of view of someone who's watched and read a lot of detective fiction it's really really entertaining to see someone do a, a 
a spin on it that's really unusual. But the film also has, you know, that that great tone that a lot of seventies thrillers had, and a lot of um, a lot of Arthur Penn's films had, where there's a nice mix of of drama, suspense, but also a fair be- deal of kind of wry comedy and people just kind of saying funny things that real people would say. Mm. Yeah, and it's it's because they're real people. All the actions in it have a kind of an emotional consequence mm. in a lot of noir, no matter how good the noir is, whether it's like Sam Spade or whether it's um uh JJ Gitters, like a lot of the time it's a uh, someone dispatched with a quip or uh you know something that's a stylistic flourish that moves the plot along whereas every person who kind of meets a sticky end in night moves or every uh, kind of machination of the plot is you know has a consequence on a real person who uh has depth and uh you kind of see it affect them uh, and then they have to act accordingly rather than just move the plot along. And you can really see that in uh, in Hackman's performance as well. It all clearly has an effect on him, and he is someone who you get the sense is only just staying ahead, ahead of a breakdown because of mm. everything that's going on in his life and his uh, his kind of distraction and his inability to figure out what's going on. Uh, it, it, there's a kind of a... It's quite an emotionally fraught film, uh, in a way that's uh, it's very kind of interesting. It's um, also kind of Arthur Penn is uh, in many ways uh, kind of relegated to kind of third or fourth tier of directors um, talked about during that period. Obviously, there was quite a lot of people to talk about um, during that time, but you know, people are kind of easy to remember that he kind of not single handedly kick-started the, the kind of new Hollywood movement with, with Bonnie and Clyde. You know, he, he kind of was there and thereabouts. But then after that, his work seems to be kind of like not really discussed as much, which is a real shame. Yeah, because you've got stuff from even something like Mickey One, which he made a few years before, and is kind of like a proto-new Hollywood film. It's really interesting and really really fascinating. And then the stuff he made during that era, you've got Night Moves, you've got Little Big Man, which is a really fascinating revisionist Western as is the Missouri Breaks, uh, which has got a great performance by Marlon Brando in a dress. Um, you know, he, there's this kind of slew of really, or later in his career, he made stuff, weird stuff like uh, Penn and Teller Get Killed, which is very kind of weird, self-aware, dark comedy. Um, he was just a really fascinating uh, filmmaker, but I think because he had less of a distinctive stamp on his work than a lot of other people. Uh, he seemed to just kind of serve whatever the material what he was working on. Uh, it's it's mm. maybe it's harder for the kind of people to make an auteurist case for him. Yeah, yeah, which is a shame. Um, you know, with those people kind of working um, kind of more as uh, kind of craftsmen rather than uh, artists. But, you know, unless they're Douglas Sirk, they don't tend to get kind of uh, uh, brought up as much. Mm. Or, or, and he doesn't even have the advantage of. I say advantage, you know, the, the tragedy of uh, of Hal Ashby, who kind of has a similar sort of thing in that he was someone who made a lot of really great films during that period, but doesn't really have a, a, a kind of distinct style connecting all of his work. Um, mm. Because he died so young, it's kind of easier for people to kind of romanticise him and talk about him as someone who had this kind of power to kind of a complete artist. Because Arthur mm. Penn, you know, died only a couple of years ago and by that point had stopped making films for quite a while. Uh, you, you know, it's kind of easy to see how he was forgotten. Yeah, yeah. But we don't forget him. Um, and, you know, we've not forgotten him by inducting him into 
uh, the alternate 100, which is probably the, the highest accolade that anyone can, can receive. So I know you're dead, Arthur, but your memory lives on with us. Um, yeah, Night Moves, uh, great film. Um, and that's why it's here. Um, our next film um, is a film by David Lynch. Uh, it's taken us uh, like 94 films uh, to get to a David Lynch one, which is surprising. Um, and we've kind of had a bit of a, a bit of a kind of wrestle about which one to include. Um, but we've gone for Wild at Heart. Sweetheart. Well, yeah, I'm going to tell you. Listen, honey, listen. I want you to know something, sweetheart. I've done something so bad. Real bad. What? I'm not going to tell you on the telephone, no. I'm going to come to New Orleans tomorrow, and I'm going to tell you in person. Okay? Marietta, don't you do that to me, honey. Uh, you'd freak out if I did something like that to you. What? What is it? Um, kind of could make a case for Wilder Heart being one of David Lynch's uh, kind of more demented films. Yes, uh, it's uh, mainly because it stars Nick Cage, and I think mm. that ad- that increases the dementedness of any film he's in. Um, but it's certainly in the in the case of this, there's a lot of weird elements. It's a, it's a it's kind of a neo-noir, lovers on the run kind of story starring Nick Cage at his most demented and Laura Dern at her most energetic uh, with Willem Dafoe at his most terrifying. Yep. Uh, Diane Ladd um, kind of giving a performance that's kind of kabuki theatre level broad, mm. including kind of painting a face with lipstick at one point. Yeah. And it's all wrapped up in a story that is kind of a quasi-remake of The Wizard of Oz, or at least has very, very big and obvious references to The Wizard of Oz uh, hidden in it. It's a, it's a very curious concoction. Yeah. I mean, you could probably say that about most David Lynch films. They're very curious mm. concoctions. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you say, there's kind of, you know, bits that are straight lift from Wizard of Oz. There's also uh, Elvis numbers in there. Yeah, um, a lot of Elvis numbers. A lot of Elvis numbers. Um, one of the most violent suicides you'll ever see on screen. Um, and like we say, yeah, Willem Dafoe um, as Bobby Peru, who has you know got one of the coolest names in films, um, but also uh, one of the uh, most unhinged nuts you're ever likely to see. Yeah, I mean, it's it, for for people who who are unfamiliar with Wild at Heart, uh, Nicolas Cage uh, plays a kind of a low level criminal who, at the start of the film. Uh, beats a guy to death after the guy tries to stab him to death on the orders of Diane Ladd, who plays her real-life daughter, Laura Dern's mother, in the film. Um, he goes to prison, comes out, and they, uh, they're they called Sailor and uh, Tallulah? Yep. I believe, yes. Sailor and Tallulah, and they, they get back together, and they're going to build a life for themselves, but they go on the run, so uh, it all becomes this kind of big thing where they're going on the run as, as outlaws, they fall in with a bunch of very strange and weird characters. They encounter uh, people who die from traumatic head injuries uh, at several points of the film because uh, David Lynch seems to really like that. Mm. Um, and it's just a film that has the kind of the typical off-kilter weirdness of a lot of uh, David Lynch's stuff where the performances are, that some of the dialogue is del- just, uh, deliberately kind of stilted, particularly... The way Nick Nicholas Cage always talks about his snakeskin jacket as a representative of his belief in self in uh, self expression and freedom, mm-hmm. um, but also it's it's got this unlike um, a lot of his films, which kind of have a a sedate dreamlike quality to them. 
um, Wild at Heart is just kind of it's it's relentlessly fast, <laughs> relentless and really fastly paced, and uh, it kind of feels like the film is constantly in danger of spinning out of control, but in a way that is really really uh, entertaining. It's probably one of um, David Lynch's most overtly sexual films. Uh, oh, yeah. all, all his films have got like a, uh, um, shall we say, uh, terrifying psychosexual undercurrent. Uh, mm-hmm. But this one is pretty much wall-to-wall fucking. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of uh, imagery of, of sex uh, and fire and red, uh, all these kind of things going along. And there is a... The, the, uh, Nicholas Cage's character in particular is kind of barely restrained as the kind of this uh, physical embodiment of an id kind of running wild throughout the film mm. um which and it kind of is, is darkly mirrored by uh defoe who has this kind of very aggressive sexuality to him that is really uh really quite uncomfortable mm. uh, particularly in, in one particular scene where he just kind of menaces laura dern he doesn't really do anything to her but he just gives off this air that makes you think you really wouldn't want to run into him anywhere not not even just a dark alley just like in Morrison's, you know, you just wouldn't want to see him anywhere. So we've just imagined a scenario in which we've won, run into Bobby Peru in Morrison's. <laughs> um, I think, yeah. I mean, even in the kind of sterile, uh, strip light lit uh, kind of supermarket world, he would still be the most terrifying thing you'd ever seen uh, outside of, you know, kind of Lynch's world. It would be horrifying. Uh, we've only picked one Lynch film. On, on this list um, and we went for Wild at Heart um, uh, after a bit of to and froing. Would you say that Wild at Heart is a good entry point for anyone who hasn't seen a David Lynch film? Probably not. I wouldn't say it's a good entry point because it kind of feels like you need to see like I think Elephant Man is probably the best entry point for Lynch because it's kind of atypical but it does give you a sense of how he can make uh make real life seem nightmarish mm. and it's accessible it's, as well elephant man yeah yeah it's, it's obviously got a, a a story that's kind of easier to engage with on an emotional level and that from there you know something like a blue velvet would probably be a, a, a good next step and then wild at heart would probably be in the area after that mm. and then you get into the freaky stuff like um <laughs> You get, you know, you're a razor heads, you're in the Dampires. Um, actually, Straight Story is quite a good uh, entry point as well. And that's the least link, the least Lynchy uh, Lynch film. Mm. Well, ironically, that's my favourite David Lynch film. It's really lovely. Yeah. I know everyone likes it, but like, I think the, the people who, the only, the, well, the only negative thing I've heard about people say about the Straight Story is it's not David Lynchy enough. Yeah. Well, I don't know. There's shots of roads. Mm, that's what I think my favourite ever gag that like in it's a bit of a you know directorial quirk of his that you know his films are a lot of the time kind of feature people on kind of road trips and you see the the kind of lines on the roads going past quite quickly and in the straight story it's just really slow he's on a tractor (laughs) and it's like he put it in there and I I see I think I think this might not be true I'm gonna say anyway I seem to remember in the scene by scene with Mark Cousins and David Lynch Mm. Mark Cousins brings that up and says Oh, you know, I love your, your, you know, your visual stuff, you know, your visual motif that you use of the, of the, of the lines, and and you know how in Straight Story it's going really slow. He's on a lawnmower. I mean, I really love that. And David Lynch just says, "Well, 
you do go really slow on a lawnmower. <laughs> and Mark Cousins doesn't really know what to say. And he's like, okay, and just moves on. Um, in fact, I'd recommend anyone watching scene by scene with David Lynch and Mark Cousins because Mark Cousins is genuinely baffled by pretty much everything that David Lynch says. I think, he, he, okay, I'm I'm saying this again. I'm, I don't remember the details of this perfectly because I probably saw it more than 15 years ago. But I'm pretty sure as well he says... Mark Cousins asks him what is the his is cinematic perfection, and uh, David Lynch says cinematic perfection is a duck's eye. Yes, I've heard that because it's so yeah. perfectly round. <laughs> and Cousins again just moves on <laughs> quickly. Um, but yeah, that's nearly as entertaining as as uh, as uh, you know anything else that David Lynch has done. But yeah, very funny. Um, so yeah, Wild at Heart, um, great film, um, very dangerous, very dangerous film. Yeah, yeah. With the, like I say, I think it's probably my one of my favourite uh, Nicolas Cage performances. Certainly, my one of my favourite crazy Nick Cage performances. Mm, it's, it's, there's lots of bad crazy Nick Cage performances, yeah, but that's a good one. It's just off the pace for me with Vampire's Kiss. That is a, <laughs> a, a mm, yeah. I wanted to call it a masterpiece. There, it's certainly something. It's certainly something, something <laughs> you will never forget. Um, but yeah, Wild at Heart. Um, our next film. Uh, is a film that very nearly wasn't a film at all. Um, I'll explain why after I tell you that that film is Hoop Dreams. Earl Smith works downtown as an insurance executive. On weekends, he's an unofficial talent scout for several area high schools. This is what you call beating the bushes. This is the job of most of your freshman coaches and guys like me who who played a little bit of the game, who loves trying to help young people on the road to success. Today, Earl spots Arthur Agee, who just graduated from grammar school. He got the quickest first step. First step. I will bet you a steak dinner. In four years, you'll be hearing from him. I don't even know anything about it. Yeah, uh, Hoop Dreams, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a uh, epic three-hour documentary by uh, Steve James um, uh, about two black teenagers and their kind of quest to uh, make it big in the NBA as professional basketball players. Um, and it started out as a, I think it was a short, maybe over, was it a 60 Minutes thing? It was, I believe it was, they, they were going to do like a 30 minute short play on PBS. Yeah. So it started like off the local, the local Chicago PBS. Yeah. So it started off as something very, very small and very kind of uh, brief and kind of surface. And then I think they ended up filming for more than five years. Um, and um, what we get is not only a kind of um, fascinating, kind of engrossing portrait um of uh kind of two young athletes trying to make um you know make a success of their well, you know their chosen career and their profession and you know trying to kind of elevate themselves but also what kind of boils down to um a kind of incredibly kind of bold and and uh kind of uncompromising look at the black experience in America yeah, I mean, it's it's a great example of people finding a story through filming mm. in that, you know, we talk about the, the fact it was going to be a 30-minute short. 
it wasn't even going to be a 30 minute short about the two guys the film ends up being about originally the idea was they were going to just follow around the scouts who go around looking at basically go to local um, schools or local um, basketball courts and just look for young kids who might be good prospects and then uh, get them help get them scholarships to take part in kind of the good schools because if you go to basketball you get a scholarship and it's kind of a way out of a very very poor um, urban existence and so and that's kind of how the film starts it starts with this guy driving around and then they happen to meet uh, Robert Gates and Arthur Agee who are the the two young men that the film end up ends up becoming about and you know through discovering their stories and following them uh, you know one guy you know they both go to sort of nice schools but um, one of them ends up getting injured so he can't continue on at the school and he gets kind of kicked back out into sort of the general um, population and the other one stays in it and then following their kind of diverging paths in life you're right it does give kind of a a a, a very kind of intimate portrayal of what it is yeah I, I was going to say what it was like to be to be black in America in sort of the 80s and 90s but I think it's probably still kind of a very true depiction of that kind of very uh, poor uh, existence now. Yeah, and it's it's kind of um, quite horrifying when you kind of see these kind of kids with mm. dreams and, and you see the kind of talent they've got and, you know, uh, clearly this opportunity to kind of uh, uh, escape um, a kind of, you know, I don't want to kind of be patronising about it, but like to escape you know, a certain type of kind of, uh, uh, you know, like you say, urban, um, uh, kind of, uh, li- well, the limitations of, of living in kind of poor urban areas in America, um, and essentially they are uh, picked up by what is an incredibly cynical corporate machine. And a bit where they go to the Nike, uh, kind of opportunities weekend or whatever it is they call it, and you know the people are talking to them like they're selling them this big dream of being you know, a big basketball star, knowing full well and, you know, being kind of fairly honest about it that they, you know, a great deal of them aren't going to make it, but the ones that are going to make it are going to make a lot of money. And it, it just feels like the companies that are kind of pushing that are the ones who are benefiting, you know. It's that whole thing about that Chris Rock thing where he's like, you know, Shaq is rich, the person who writes his check is wealthy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's definitely... You definitely get a sense from the film of how much that chance of getting out and of getting rich means to those young kids, and how it's very different from, you know, the the prospect of like a young white kid getting into the NFL, mm. because it's not just a case of wanting to go somewhere and become rich. It's a case a case of wanting to go somewhere so that you can get your entire family out. Mm-hmm. Um, because you see that the families of these, so some of them are uh, sort of very, very hardworking. One of them, um, I think, is it Arthur Stout, who's like a drug addict and drug yes. dealer? Yeah. yeah, how he's this kind of guy who's tried to give up drugs, but is still on them. And, you know, in one heartbreaking scene, you see him kind of playing basketball with his son, and then he just goes off to go and buy drugs just on the side of the court. And you really get this sense of, you know, these are these like bright, really talented young kids, and that you you really do get a sense that this may be their only chance of escaping from an existence that could just completely grind them up and destroy them. Mm. And it's like um, it's brought into kind of uh, sharp relief when 
you do a bit of kind of further reading outside of it and find out that pretty much you know a good deal of the kind of supporting cast of, of characters and obviously characters of real people um were kind of dead very shortly after and the majority of them violently yeah i think it's, is it one of the brothers was uh, shot dead in real life yeah absolutely uh, and uh, i think the dad one of the dads was carjacked and killed mm. and yeah it's it's like it kind of balances that you know that opportunity to escape that where you know that no one's saying that's going to happen to you but mm-hmm. it appears that you've got quite a high chance of that happening to you um and you know what they're being what these kind of young kids are being sold as a as a kind of escape plan is uh you know it's kind of crazy looking at how slim that chance is mm. do, do you think that because there's a big uh one of the big things about um hoop dreams is that it was nominated for an oscar for best editing mm-hmm. which it deserves because obviously they had like five years of footage and they made a, a a great film out of it but it was also it was snubbed for best documentary and they ended up changing the academy rules so they couldn't they could avoid that happening again do you think that is one of the worst snubs in Oscar history? If they, if these things matter, uh, I mean they don't. Um, yeah, obviously, but they it's don't. it's it's pretty bad. And if you read about what happened, um, there was uh, for members of the Academy who had to watch um, the documentary uh, uh, kind of long list or whatever. Uh, there was an antiquated system where if a certain number of people were watching it in one screening room. And I think that at that point when they were kind of trying to get burned through all the films that were eligible or that had been kind of nominated on a long list or whatever, um, they were watching it. If they all put, the, if a certain amount of people put their hands up in the room, they would turn the film off. And the biggest group of people who were, you know, the most important group of Academy voters who were watching Hoop Dreams at one time turned the film off after 10 minutes. Jesus Christ. Which is kind of horrifying. And uh, it said that, like, you know, that when, you know, voting was put in, I think it was something to do with, like, uh, there would, you know, uh, be on a scale of, like, you know, one to ten or whatever. And Hoop Dreams got more ten votes than any other film. Mm-hmm. But not enough people watched it to the end. I think it was Roger Ebert who kind of really looked into what had happened. Like, Roger Ebert was a big champion of Hoop Dreams and... Uh, Steve James returned the favour and he kind of directed a really great film about, about Roger Ebert's life that came out earlier this year uh, called Life Itself and they were kind of very close but um, Roger Ebert I think was the person who kind of blew the kind of lifted the lid on that they kind of wanted to know more about um, the uh, voting practices behind the like the academy and I think that's what came out and I, that is why the rules were changed because they seemed incredibly unfair. I mean, they're kind of stupid anyway. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, if you look back at the films that came out that year, Hoop Dreams has got a shot with being one of the best films full stop that year, not even the documentary. You kind of kind of separate films into documentary and foreign language and animation ghettos, then, you know, you're going to end up with, you know, people getting shortchanged all the time. It doesn't surprise me one bit. Um, but, yeah, I think if you're going to, if you think such things matter, then, yeah, it's a, it's a massive snub. Um, I'm not even sure what won that year. No, I don't either. You're right that it was one of the um, the best of that year. I think Ebert and Siskel both put it as their number one film for 1994. Yeah. Um, and they and when uh, Ebert and Martin Scorsese, because obviously Siskel had passed away um, by the end of the 90s, when they did the the best of the 90s episode, it was possibly number one, but definitely in the top ten. 
mm. one of the best films of the 1990s. And I think that uh, it is, you know, it, that is absolutely true. I think it's one of the most important films, one of the most do- important documentaries made about the black experience in America. I think it's one of the best about, but I also think it's it's one of the best sports films ever in that even though it does offer a very clear-eyed view of, uh, of, of what that entire kind of corporate machine is and how little the chances of anyone actually making it through that to be in the NBA. Mm. There is still, it, it can't obscure the kind of hopeful and kind of the, uh, kind of the elegiac quality of sport, the idea of sport as a way of getting out and as a, as a form of escape. Um, and the, the scenes in it, the actual basketball scenes in it and some of the ways in which the, those games impact the plot, it's, it's really hard not to get kind of really caught up with them in the same way that you do like in one of the fights in Rocky. Mm, you know? yeah. Okay, um, next film we're going to talk about um, is a film that offers a very different take on the black experience <laughs> in America, you could say. Um, and one of the most outrageously fun films on the list. Um, uh, we thought we'd save it kind of till the end. Uh, we're talking about Black Dynamite. I should have known you'd be behind this fiendish Dr. Wu. Your knowledge of scientific biological transmogrifications is only outmatched by your zest for kung fu treachery. Your kung fu is quite extraordinary. Black Dynamite. No match for you should have joined us when you had the chance. But now, you must die. Man, I'll take this job, ass turkey. Oh, no! Oh, no! At long last, a friendship bonded by the struggle against a man has been brought to an end by kung fu treachery! Brother, your death will not go unavenged. Now, Black Dynamite is um, extraordinary for many reasons. Uh, One of them is that, on paper, that joke should get old after five, ten minutes tops, Mm. um, but still manages to be insanely fun um, from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, for people who are unaware of Black Dynamite, um, the honkies out there, uh, (laughs) it is... (laughs) It is a black exploitation spoof directed by a guy called uh, Scott Sanders and again co-written by uh, the star Michael Jar White, who got the idea because he was a huge fan of old black exploitation films like Dolomite and Superfly, and uh, he wanted to do a film that uh, not only kind of mimicked the storytelling of a black exploitation film, which there have been films like that. You know, you can look at things like Undercover Brother, which kind of uses the tropes and the styles of it, or um, uh, I'm gonna get you, sucker. Yeah, I'm going to get you, sucker. Uh, the Louis C.K. one that I've forgotten the title of. Uh, Pootie Tang. Pootie Tang, yeah. Pootie Tang. Um, they're, they're ones that kind of have these images of pimps and, you know, they, they use a lot of those ideas. And uh, But the they go a step further beautifully in Black Dynamite and completely recreate the look of a black exploitation film. They have deliberately cheap-looking sets. They use crappy... They either use bad film stock or they, like, beat the shit out of it after filming to give it a, like a really grainy look. The performances are often very deliberately stilted. Um, there's a brilliant performance in the opening scene where um, Black Dynamite's brother, Jimmy, gets murdered for being a police informant. 
and he uh, the guy who's playing him is a has a very effective british accent <laughs> which is uh, a wonderful kind of in joke about the fact that in a lot of black exploitation films because a lot of them were shot in new york and they often would struggle to kind of get people who were good enough actors they would tend to have to go for people who were shakespearean like who were trained in shakespeare and they wouldn't really be able to do uh, naturalistic speech for the dialogues and there's lots of things like that there's jokes about you know there's one point where um black dynamite is uh he's talking to another character and the sound in the scene is really really bad and when he stands up you realize it's because the mic is really far away and then the mic is in in shot and there's lots of kind of things like that it's got a very kind of garth merengue-ish quality to it where they're really aping a very specific style and like yeah. you say that that could run its course but it's also like a brilliantly absurd film yeah yeah yeah. i mean the plot in itself is is kind of funny um mm. and it's 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 um kind of ludicrous enough to be uh to keep you going with it rather than just being a series of like kind of interconnected sketches um but what i would say is that the garth Bringy comparison is is accurate in, in kind of uh two senses in that uh a it's um uh kind of spot on uh, taking apart the the limitations of those films in the first place and and kind of uh, aping the style, um, but also B uh, that is incredibly hard to do. Yes, to, you know from a from a filmmaking perspective to do it deliberately badly, but so you've done it deliberately badly that it doesn't look like you've just done it badly. Mm. <laughs> if you get what I mean, is incredibly yeah. difficult, and it shows um, uh, not only a a kind of deep understanding of how films are made, but also an incredible kind of uh, affection for those films in the first place. Yeah. You can really see that in sort of these very, there's, there's kind of a, a even though it's a film, that obviously has a kind of a, a budget and professional actors, like it's got um, McKelty uh, Williams, who uh, people will probably know from um, playing Bubba in Forrest Gump. And most recently on, uh, on justified, even though it has this thing, there's kind of a really fun homemade quality to it. For example, there's a scene where Black Dynamite is practicing his kung fu by basically beating up a room full of um, ninjas, just in kind of like the spare room of his house. And there's a moment where one of he like throws a guy on the ground, and the camera lingers on this guy as he kind of looks around, and then when he gets up to run away, uh, Black Dynamite has reappeared on the other side of the frame, and he knocks him down again. <laughs> and then the guy lingers on the camp, the guy again, and he looks around and he gets up and black dynamite is on the other side and beats him up again. And it's clear that what's happening there is Michael Jar White is just running behind the camera and getting into place, <laughs> which is like the sort of thing I used to do when I used to make shitty short films with my friends. Um, mm. But it's really, it's just really, really funny. There is this very, is it what kind of adds to its charm that it's just a guy, a bunch of people making a film uh, kind of, very affectionately mocking a style of, of film that they really like. Mm. One of my favourite jokes in there, I kind of said this to you before we kind of went on, that is um, the bit where um, uh, Black Dynamite is is kind of facing off against uh, a henchman and uh, the henchman actually punches hit Michael Jai White in the face and uh, then it just cuts and the, the kind of the actual, the, the scene is broken and then it instantly recuts with a different actor as if the stuntman has just been fired for really punching the actor in the face and they've had to bring in a completely different looking guy. Um, but they've left the film in because obviously, uh, yeah, not just trying to smooth over the crack. It would be too difficult. Um, and it's just little gags like that that kind of uh, that 
uh, kind of sell it really. Mm, or um, just like at one point, they uh, Black Dynamite goes into a room full of uh, of black militants of like Black Panthers, mm. and like one of them just goes says the militants turn turn startled, and he's really he's just reading the stage directions and not realizing <laughs> it's not dialogue. <laughs> Or he then says, he then says, who's in charge here? And he goes, sarcastically, I am. Mm. And, and it's just like little things like that. I think that that's, you know, there's a real specificity to it in that, you know, if you've ever watched these sort of films, you can really kind of see the, the, the kind of the crappy production design stuff that they're making fun of. But there's also like, it's one of, there's also so many quotes in it that have nothing to do with, you don't need to know, have any knowledge of that quotation for cinema. They're just really, really funny. They're just like, uh, they're just kind of really great, funny, absurd jokes in a kind of an airplane sort of way. In the way that, you know, you can watch Airplane having never seen Zero Hour, having never seen Airport or any of those disaster movies, and it's still really, really funny. Mm. And um, Black Dynamite has that same sort of kind of joke per minute of, of approach and just these kind of great lines. You know, I, I quoted one line of it on Facebook the other day, and then me and a couple of friends, after about half an hour, I had quoted like a third of the script. Because almost every other line in it is just kind of amazingly weird and funny. Um, the absolute best for me, of course, being when he Black Dynamite kills the fiendish Doctor Wu with a uh, a throwing star, but the throwing star just kind of comes into the room halfway through the scene, and Black Dynamite just goes, "Ah, I threw that shit before it came in the room," <laughs> and then just kicks him in the face. It's just a really, it's just such an absurd line, but it's. It's elevated by how delighted Michael Jarre White is in saying it. <laughs> you can tell that he is having an amazing time filming this film and like getting to realise this dream he's obviously had for years to star in a black exploitation film. Mm, yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, being a black exploitation film um, that is not absolutely fucking dreadful because <laughs> I'm gonna go so far as to say that ninety percent of all the black exploitation films I've seen have been fucking terrible. Yeah, there's very few. There's like maybe like Foxy Brown's not too bad. Mm. Across 110 seems quite good. Shaft. And that's yeah. <laughs> There's yeah. not a huge amount more that are really particularly good. And when we um, say good, like they're watchable. They're not good. Uh, they're kind of quite bad. They often um, have better soundtracks. Oh, yeah. yeah, like yeah. The soundtrack to Superfly. Yeah. Amazing. And it was, uh, it's, 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 I think it's a, it's a record holder, which, which is a film that's, uh, soundtrack uh, completely outgrossed the film takings. That wouldn't uh, surprise me. Uh, I think that's uh, a rarity. Um, so another yeah. good, another good detail in the film is that it's got a lot of original songs, which, much like Curtis Mayfield's contributes uh, contributions to uh, the, to the the Superfly soundtrack, describe exactly what's happening in the screen in the scene. Yeah, they're, they're things like. Uh, talking about can't believe my brother's dead and things like more general, but also there's like a scene later on where black dynamite goes into an apartment that's been broken into and every line in it is talking about like the door being kicked in and stuff like that. Yeah. I don't, maybe apart from the exception of like Caddyshack, which you mentioned earlier, you're not going to find too many films that are uh, as goofy and as fun as, uh, as black dynamite. Um, So yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, do seek it out. uh, And you know, don't kind of judge it by its uh, what it would appear to be, which is a is a one note gag that will get old very quickly. It really doesn't. It's very very funny and endlessly requotable. And just talking about these scenes as 
uh, made me chuckle inside and uh, and want to kind of rewatch it immediately. Um, so from Black Dynamite, a film which is uh, very goofy, very funny, um, and kind of absurd, to a film that is not funny at all, uh, we're talking about Gus Van Sant's Elephant. I went into the south entrance, right? Then we go past the trophy case and the, metal, uh, the mineral case, went in through the language lab. No, they don't use it anymore, so there shouldn't be anybody in there. Gear up there, and then we'll hear the primary explosions go about here in the cafeteria, right? When that goes, we should be able to, you know, pick off kids as we traverse the east wing, right? And then we have another explosion that should go off here in the gym yeah. and here in the auditorium. Right. At about that time, there should be kids flushing all out in all directions, and we'll just be able to pick them off one by one. Um, yeah, um, I think this is. I'm going to say Gus Van Sant's best film, I think. Um, some people might argue for My Own Private Idaho or, or Good Will Hunting, but I think with this, he kind of manages to um, uh, make a personal film, but also uh, kind of talk quite frankly about something that is a bit of an American sickness. Uh, something We're talking about high school shootings uh, and do it in a way that is uh, artistically very bold um, and hugely affecting. It's definitely the best of that, uh, what's known as his death trilogy, mm-hmm. which is the three films that are all as cheery as each other, um, which is that, Jerry, which has uh, Matt Damon and Casey Affleck wandering out into the desert to die, mm-hmm. and uh, the one that's about Kurt Cobain, but not. Oh, Last Days. Last Days. I knew it had last in it, but mm-hmm. I was getting confused by the next film on our list. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's about... Columbine in a very kind of lift in a very kind of specific sense because it came out in 2003, which obviously is only a few years removed from the Columbine shooting. It is about the uh, the lead up to and events of a school shooting in kind of a uh, what looks like kind of a, a typical sort of Midwestern uh, school, and it follows the de- a couple of days in the lives of the the two young men who carry out the shooting people are in, who just are in the school on that day and you know and it does it in a very uh in a very in, in a completely unsensed sensationalistic sort of way um particularly you know the the style of it and Gus Van Zandt says this I think he says this in um in the story of film the Mark Cousins documentary he talks about how he was very influenced by Tomb Raider of all things in his visual style in the film. Cause he, he played a lot of Tomb Raider and he was fascinated by the idea of a camera that just constantly follows a, ca- a, a character through a, an environment. Mm. And you can really see that in elephant in which the, a lot of the film, it's him, it's, he's also kind of very heavily influenced by Bella Tarr, um, where the camera just follows a character walking through an environment and, you know, it doesn't cut, it just sees them interact with people. And I think that, uh, that creates a, a real sense of normalcy to the film of just like as if you're just another person walking through the halls of this school watching these people walk around which kind of heightens the horror of the actual shooting when it breaks out which is like handled in a very sensitive and non-exploitative way yeah it's those long creeping tracking shots um once you kind of get into the rhythm of them because the, the 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 film shows the events unfold from different perspectives that kind of go back and forwards through time after you kind of start to feel the normalcy of the situation as soon as the camera starts moving it gives you an impending sense of like dread and foreboding 
Yeah, definitely. And um, I, it also there's this this just kind of sense that it's a, a film just observing observing these events as they're about to unfold, and that also uh, kind of extends to the story specifically the story of the two killers who uh, who take who conduct the uh, shooting because. Uh, when it follows them, it kind of it, it kind of drops in all these things that people say are responsible for the shootings, like the two kids play video games and they listen to heavy metal music, but also one of them is a really talented pianist. And it just kind of drops in all these things, essentially to say to people, there is no easy explanation for why these things happened. Uh, and just kind of putting them in a way, in a non-judgmental way, that doesn't feel as if it's like kind of, pointing its fingers at this one particular cultural artifact that caused these two kids to snap. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting companion piece to something like Bowling for Columbine, which mm. uh, is, is very shrill in it, as, as much as it is a, uh incredibly effective uh, film and, and uh, very skillfully put together by uh, Michael Moore. Um, it's not a documentary. It's a bit of polemic. Um, um, it's 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 a kind of it's it would, like it would seem a much more sensitive non sensationalist uh, kind of argument than than that. Yeah, it's it's not alarmist at all. It's it comes from I think it comes from a place of real sadness mm-hmm. and a real a real desire to understand this sort of why this happens, but without you know kind of trying to play but without Gus Van Zandt trying to place his own interpretation on it just kind of saying you know this sort of thing happens and trying to get people to kind of think through what might be in the culture that drives you know young men to pick up assault rifles and gun down their fellow students Mm. yeah and you know we'll never really know um but elephant kind of gets close to understanding the humanity of it Mm. and it's a film that has uh sadly you know just it's never it's more relevant every year Mm. You know, it, it doesn't feel like it's a it's a film that's ever going to lose that power. And yeah, it's not like a reefer madness style kind of alarmist teenager mm. thing. That it is, uh, yeah, sadly a truly horrifying uh, thing to revisit. And it's it's a tough film to watch, and it's a tough film to rewatch. Uh, I you know I it's like I say it's um, overwhelmingly kind of sad um, that that it's just such a kind of accurate. Uh, portrayal of just the kind of waste of 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 just in the kind of the pointlessness of it, mm. and it and it really does get to the uh, kind of certainly if you if you think a few years ago in the wake of the the Newtown shooting, the sense of helplessness. You watch it and you just you do feel helpless, you know, knowing that these these kids are going to die, and there's nothing anyone can do to kind of prevent it because it's just going to come out of the blue mm-hmm. um, and it's very rare for film to kind of to to produce that and particularly in, in terms of this subject matter to kind of let audi- that audiences sit with that helplessness and not to offer them kind of easy kind of platitudes to explain it mm. or a hero to kind of hang their hopes on it's mm. you know it just is what it is and it's not great. There's two films on this list that are about kind of they're really bleak films about massacres, um, without the blue uh, being the other one. Um, but yeah, um, this talking about elephant actually brings us to an important juncture in the alternate 100. That arriving at 
films 98, 99, 100, we can guarantee there are no more grim films on the list. <laughs> Elephant is the very, very last one, I promise. Everything from this point in is going to be fun. Um, so, yeah, Elephant, great film. Uh, the next film we're going to talk about is uh, The Last Detail. We're going so you can take your hand off that horse cock you got stashed under the bar. How do you know I don't have something with a little more bark to it? Ho, ho, ho. This redneck is talking about firearms. Well, I know that you ain't got nothing but wood under there, my man, because I happened to be in here one night when a certain sailor got it laid up the side of his fucking head. What do you think about that, redneck? Boston loses license for sure if I serve that kid. I'm gonna kick your ass around the block for drill, man. You try it and I'll call the shore patrol. I am the shore patrol, motherfucker. I'm the motherfucking shore patrol. Give this man a beer. Uh, you mentioned it earlier. Uh, last detail is directed by uh, Hal Ashby, um, who is you know often talked about as being the forgotten man of uh, the new Hollywood movement that we constantly rim job on on this on this <laughs> podcast um uh yeah hal ashby made um like not only like some of the best films of of that period i mean some of my favorite films full stop things like harold and maud um the last detail and uh being there and shampoo um those films are all exceptional pieces of work uh full stop uh you know let alone the fact that he made all four of those films in like a 10 year period. Yeah. I think he has, he, he has one of the, the great runs of all kind of certainly of, of that seventies period. There's not really a bum note. He started, he started out as an editor, which I think probably mm. helps because I think mm-hmm. he, he hadn't, he really knew how to give a film a rhythm and so how to use the edits to really carry the story and particularly to sell jokes, which is a big thing in some of his early stuff, stuff like the landlord, which is a very funny kind of uh, broad comedy uh, with uh, Bow Bridges. Um, but even his kind of like his more minor stuff, like something like Bound for Glory, which is a, mm-hmm. a biopic about Woody Guthrie. And, you know, biopics, I think as we've talked about, it's, it's, a, it's a genre that's very hard to do right. And music biopics, even more so. Even that has this kind of, this kind of essence to it that kind of sets it apart. This kind of, uh, kind of like funny, kind of funky sort of energy. I think that the last detail is is for me is is probably my favourite of that entire that entire run because uh, he uses that to tell a story just kind of a it's like it's basically a road movie about two uh army kind of a uh, navy police uh who have to take another navy officer to to prison basically and they have that's the, the last detail is to to transport him from one place to another and about how being in proximity to each other, you know, gets them to talk to to, to each other and to kind of share their experiences. And that setup could be sort of very standard uh, and very uninspiring, but, you know, something about the way the film is constructed makes it into this kind of really kind of, at times outrageously funny, other times kind of deeply sad and kind of... Uh, kind of morally serious story about the state of America and it never feels like those two elements of the film are kind of butting heads. It feels as if it's all one thing that makes perfect sense being together. Hmm. Yeah. It's um quite kind of uh before Jack Nicholson 
made The Shining. It's kind of often talked about that um, kind of after he made The Shining, pretty much every film he did, he played Jack Nicholson uh, and into that kind of Jack persona. Um, and we talked about earlier when we talked about Five Easy Pieces a few episodes ago. Um, you know, it's weird growing up with Jack Nicholson playing Jack Nicholson to see him act. And Last Detail is um, just another one in that catalogue of performances before he kind of uh, went full grin and sunglasses. Um, but he really was um, the actor of his generation, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, he's he's unbelievably charismatic in it, mm-hmm. but also not afraid to be an asshole because that's kind of what he is. You know, he's he's works for the Shore Patrol. He's a guy who has to take this young kid to prison and he he's at least at the start you kind of get the feeling that he's just doing his job he's just following orders but as it as it goes along and that facade kind of is is chipped away a little bit just because he's he gets the light he likes the kid you know he enjoys spending time with him and he enjoys talking to him and you really get the sense that he's he, he's one of those people who, who follows orders because he's part of the navy and that's what he does but he has sort of very serious questions about things like, you know, obviously Vietnam is playing out in the background and things like that. And questioning authority, but being forced to carry it out. And it takes a very special actor to carry off that balance. And, um, you know, at that time, there was no one more kind of perfectly attuned to do it than Jack Nicholson. And um, talking about kind of... um people being perfectly attuned to deliver something. Robert Town, um, you know, people talk about Chinatown being the kind of the great screenplay. Um, Last Detail is, you know, up there with a shot of being, you know, certainly one of his best, um, which probably gives it a shot of being one of the best. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the lines in it are, are fantastic. You know, he gives uh, Nicholson some, some really great monologues, but also there is just kind of a really earthy fun sense of humor to it you know the scene that i always think of as being really really great is um they find out that the the young lad who's played by randy quaid uh, in the film uh, is uh, is a virgin and they decide they're going to take him to a prostitute so that he can you know have sex once before he goes to prison and um he goes uh, he goes upstairs with the girl and then she comes back down and he's basically he is he has uh, he has ejaculated prematurely and they, she still wants the kind of payment because, you know, he came. So she still wants to be paid for the full full hour or whatever. And it's just a really, really funny scene because then they get into the position of arguing over the economics of it. Uh, but all the time, well, there's this young kid who's just had the most kind of painfully embarrassing moment of his life <laughs> playing out around them. And the, that that kind of thing just kind of runs throughout the whole thing. It's just this, this really great, uh, sense of humor mm. yeah um it's interesting that um jack nicholson um has gone on record i don't know whether it was during the drug years or what but saying that was his best role um mm. you could probably make an argument for that it's my favorite performance of his um i would say like it, it, i think i think i probably would say that chinatown is still the better film mm-hmm. but i think this one it's so driven by his performance and uh, he plays such a wonderfully uh, kind of conflicted character that it, it really does push him uh, in every possible way as a performer, and he really rises to the occasion. 
is that difference between it being driven by his charisma or being driven by his caricature, which mm. is quite often what happened, uh, kind of post Shining. But yeah, the last detail, uh, if, if you know you have the means to uh, explore how Ashby's work, um, please do. Uh, Harold and Maud is uh, my favourite, but I think the last detail is probably a better film. And um, yeah, all his work's fantastic in that kind of period. So do seek it out. Um, the penultimate film we're going to talk about on the alternate 100 um, is one of my very favourite films. Um, and uh, yeah, if you've ever worked on a film, uh, especially a low-budget film, then you will feel the pain of everyone in this film. Uh, we're going to talk about living in oblivion. What are you laughing at, Wolf? You fucking pretentious beret-wearing motherfucker. Hey, I saw your real man. It sucked. Fuck would hire you anyway. Hey, Bob! Hey, Bob! Can you make a little noise on the fucking dolly? Huh? You creaky motherfucker! Wanda, next time can you wear a shirt that's a little bit more distracting to my actors? What is your name anyway? What do you fucking do around here? Hey, Speedo, you can't find a little fucking beat? Huh? You see what I fucking have to deal with here, Nicole? Uh, a time when uh, that kind of Sundance boom was happening, you know, the kind of sex lies and videotapes onward, uh, through kind of Reservoir Dogs and that, that kind of movement of uh, those kind of young up-and-coming filmmakers. Uh, this was a really kind of fun look at that process. And, you know, all those guys working on film, uh, low-budget, independent movies. Uh, Tom DiCilio made uh, what might be the funniest film about making a film um, that I can think of um, in you know, a kind of very tidy package which has Steve Buscemi as the kind of tortured, low-budget auteur trying to realise his dream screenplay, but practically everything that can go wrong does go wrong, and then it gets weird. Yeah, you're right in that it's one of the funniest about filmmaking. I think a large part of that is that it's really surprisingly unashamed about skewering the pretensions of that kind of low-budget filmmaking. Mm. Oh yeah, um, you know, because usually if you make if you see people making a comedy about 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 filmmaking, they'll go for like big big budget stuff because then you can make fun of like outrageous star demands and things like that. You can get something like you know David Mamet's uh, State and Maine, which is a really mm-hmm. really funny film. Um, is really is really really good, but that's obviously about that's more about saying you know oh you know the, the Hollywood machine and making things fun of things like that. Whereas this is very much about the serious. Uh, arty uh filmmaking that is meant to be taken that, that we're meant to kind of see as the the savior of the art form where it's more basically saying yeah there's a lot of pretentious chances out there <laughs> making films and uh Buscemi even though he he does he obviously believes in what he's doing you get a sense that the film he's making is actually not that good um yeah which definitely. helps which helps kind of ex- accentuate the humor yeah it's um Interesting because uh, Tom DiCilio, the uh, director who made the film, um, had already kind of made his mark uh, with Johnny Swade, uh, the film that uh, cast uh, Brad Pitt in the kind of, the kind of titular role. Um, and one of my favourite things about uh, Living in Oblivion is the performance of James LaGrosse as the character Chad Palomino which is, again, like, a bit like Bobby Prue, one of the best names in films. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, he is a, a kind of blonde, uh, slightly slow-witted actor with pretensions of, 
you know, getting some credibility while working on an independent film. And I think he repeatedly says, you know, I, I only worked on this because someone told me you were tight with Tarantino. Um, <laughs> but he is uh, purportedly based on Brad Pitt, although I think that DiCilio since then has perhaps come out and said, no, I think it's a very obvious thing to say. But he is one of my favourite characters because he is uh, so slow-witted, um, but yet so vain. Um that he thinks an eye patch will add depth to his character, <laughs> um, where in actual fact it actually reduces your spatial depth <laughs> um, visually. But yeah, it's um, it's a film that's full of char- like characters and situations that should be really broad and stupid, but just real enough that if you have been in those situations, and I've worked on some films, I've worked on kind of the low budget films uh, quite a bit, and uh, you think, yeah, that's. That's a real person, but it's just on that borderline of being, you know, just a bit too ridiculous to be true. Yeah, I mean, I I've also worked on some low budget films, mainly in like as like an extra in friends films because they need they needed people to kind of fill out scenes and stuff like that. But even that, you do get a sense the the, the chaos of it. I think the film does a really really good job of conveying how chaotic a low budget film shoot is purely because. It's just very difficult to make films in general, but it's especially difficult if you have no money and you have to try and get things right, and it often doesn't quite work out that way. Um, and I think that the film does a really, really good job of getting across that level of chaos without kind of like spiraling into kind of ridiculousness. It's it's a farce, but it doesn't kind of go. It doesn't kind of really push it too far, uh, which is a. It's very hard to kind of determine where that line is but the film does a really really good job of of walking it even in something like you know the film i think probably the scene that it's most famous for certainly at this point is a small role um with pete dinklage Mm, this is is his debut yes that's right yeah he he plays a an actor who's cast as a dwarf in a in a dream sequence (laughs) kind of walks around carrying an apple in front of a woman and um they keep doing the scene and it's never right and they keep going and they keep going and they keep going and it's never right. And at one point he just has this complete breakdown and just kind of tears into everyone saying, have you ever had a dream in which you see a dwarf? And he says, and they all, everyone says, says no. And he says, yes, it's just something that people put in films to say, this is weird. And he <laughs> says that I'm a dwarf and I don't dream about dwarves. <laughs> Um, which is just such a perfect it's such a it, it could be a scene that's just really kind of like you say really broad and silly but uh dinklage does such a fantastic job at kind of selling that and also you kind of get the sense that there probably is a certain degree of truth to that in you know being a dwarf actor probably means that there are a lot of people coming to you and saying hey can you be in this dream sequence <laughs> for me um and you really do get the sense that uh, there is th- th- there is just enough realness there to kind of ground the humour while also heightening it. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah. It, it also kind of portrays that that thing that is quite rarely given across on films about filmmaking is that a lot of the time making a film is incredibly boring mm-hmm. and it's tedious waiting for waiting for things like the traffic to stop outside and you know like bits of equipment keep kind of fucking up and. It's there's a lot of the film which is them just trying to get a shot in the can um, that is you know so difficult and there's I think there's a great bit where they're trying to get a, a, you know uh, thirty seconds of uh, Atmos which mm. if you don't know is the bit where you know after you've recorded a dialogue scene you record everyone in the room being completely silent so 
you can kind of use it to cover gaps in the in the dialogue um and so it sounds like not silence it's the room tone um and that's just brilliant because they can't even seem to get through 30 seconds of no one saying anything <laughs> uh, without something going wrong um which again if you've worked on a film of any kind of budget or any kind of uh, like you know uh, level really you will appreciate uh, the kind of seemingly herculean task it is to get anything done um, and that film brings it to life so beautifully yeah and i think that the uh, it, it has a great balance between obvious kind of like uh rueful experience <laughs> kind of a sense of yeah we've worked on films and things have been hell mm. <laughs> and we all understand this but also genuine affection for the art and there is a kind of a sense of triumph when something goes right yeah yeah absolutely um we're there ed we are at film number 100 um um and it is uh, Star Wars Episode One. <laughs> no, it isn't. I won't even do that to you people. That would be awful. Um, it is a film that is infinitely better than that. It is The Illusionist. caveat that and you might not have got it from the clip that Ed's chosen um, but we're talking about The Illusionist the animation by Sylvain Chomet and not the film with Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti about magicians um, what's The Illusionist Ed because it's it's a film that um, kind of is overshadowed slightly by the, the director's previous film uh, Belleville Rendezvous The Illusionist wasn't quite as successful no although at the time it was kind of a big deal because he hadn't made a film since then, well, he'd shot like a, I think he'd done a segment in like Paris Chatem, but mm-hmm. you know, everyone did that. Um, so yeah, uh, it's a, a film about a, a, a stage musician um, who doesn't have a rivalry with Paul Giamatti, but no. is a, a, a kind of just an old fading stage musician uh, in uh, sort of the 19, sorry, the late 1950s or early 1960s, uh, who is kind of playing to pretty much empty houses uh whose whose career is being overshadowed by kind of uh, pop music and things like that people are moving away from the old traditions of being interested in and enjoying stage magic who uh kind of has this it strikes up a friendship with a young girl who um he, who is kind of amazed by his tricks and who he kind of forms a bond with and it's just a kind of very light comedy about uh, his kind of this very sad comedy based on a screenplay originally written by Jacques Tati um, in the 1960s, which you can kind of very easily see as being, and often is interpreted as being about his, you know, his, his scent, his fear of aging and of being outgrown by audiences and, you know, his own kind of fear that his, his career had taken away, him away from his, his, his children. Um, and uh, it's just a really very lovely little film. Yeah. It's a very apt way of, uh, a kind of reviving that that idea by Jacques Tati because it was kind of seen by a lot of people as kind of being a, a kind of love letter to his daughter. They had a kind of a quite complicated relationship, didn't they? Yes, you know, the, he was such a perfectionist who spent years working on his film. I think there was a a general sense, you know, from what I've got, that he was quite a distant a distant kind of father figure 
uh, even though he was kind of beloved by audiences worldwide. You know, it's kind of a very uh, familiar story about someone who kind of puts all their all into their art and doesn't really leave uh, anything for anyone else. And you can really kind of see that in the film. Uh, the 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 relationship he has with the young girl is 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 very funny and very kind of sweet, but it's also you know really really sad because you kind of get the sense that this uh, this guy has uh, committed his entire life to his artwork to his art, and then he's reached the point where people don't really care anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's um, unusual because the film was very well received, but it really didn't do very well at the box office. It kind of lost. Uh, quite a bit of money. Um, why do you think it didn't quite take off the way that uh, Belleville Rendezvous did? Uh, I think it's because it's because it's it's kind of aping Tatty's style. You know, Jack Tatty was someone who had kind of a very low key but very meticulous style. He would often have lots of things happening in the frame at the same time, but he would his camera wasn't very kind of effusive. It would often just come certainly something like playtime the camera would often just kind of be fairly static while things happened around it. And that is a style that is, that people aren't really kind of used to in animation. Um, you know, animations kind of are very, can be very busy. And I think that that kind of made, maybe made it look a little staid and boring to people, but also uh, the Belleville Rendezvous is, it's a very expressive film. It's a very mm. film that has kind of grotesque, grotesque caricatures in it and there's a little bit of that in, in the illusionist but obviously not to the same extent it also has kind of a uh, a more kind of an emotional through line in that it's just about the, the grandmother trying to help a grandson uh and i think it's kind of the story in it is a lot clearer whereas i think that by the nature of of the origins of the script and the way that it it, it, it kind of feels like it's more of a niche interest like it's a film for film people rather than a film for general audiences. Yeah, and certainly not a film for children. No, definitely although there's not. much to enjoy in the kind of the, the kind of simple comedy of it, and it's it's a film that's kind of like you know drenched in melancholy. It, yeah, it's incredibly sad and melancholy. There's a real sense of kind of a of an age that's uh, passing the character by, uh, which uh, you know I think is probably. A, originates from the original screenplay, but I think is also probably something that uh, Sylvain Chimay probably feels as well, because um, the style of filmmaking that Tati made kind of doesn't really exist anymore and kind of passed with him uh, and passed with, like, you know, when Charlie Chaplin stopped making films. Um, and, you know, there's just a sense of melancholy for that particular kind of very gentle uh, storytelling no longer really being around that much. Mm. A sad film, but a very beautiful one, um, and an apps film to finish our list with. I think. Yes, because it's a it's a kind of a beautiful send off of a of a style of a storytelling and a, of a particular character, and uh, I think this is a very apt way for us to finish a very kind of long and uh, time consuming project. Mm, yeah, but fun though. What do oh, you think? Yeah. What do you think that this uh, top 100 tells us about ourselves, Ed? I think the thing that jumps out to me um, is uh, it's kind of a very personal list. I think we probably could have put this list together very differently um, in terms of like a lot of the films are favourites of ours rather than uh, films we admire more. 
Mm, and certainly if you listen to that, I think there's a lot of, a lot of times there's like personal stories of us talking about things from our past that connect us to the films. Mm. Um, and I think that it, it reflects that the personal nature of it are also kind of our shared taste with obviously, you know, we like the seventies as everyone knows, we like the seventies, uh, but also, you know, the, our, I think you and I both have a very fine appreciation for uh, filmmakers who maybe are more like workmen than necessarily kind of traditionally art authors, people who can put a film together in a very, very efficient way that, you know, maybe doesn't have uh, a lot of, maybe not, doesn't have like a, a particularly huge personal stamp, but definitely results in a great work of art. Mm-hmm. Um, and also appreciation just for genres that are maybe not treated as uh, seriously as others, particularly horror. Uh, I think you, you and I both approach films from that perspective quite a lot. Mm. Yeah, I think it's also what kind of surprised me. I think when I look back at the the hundred we picked, uh, it's very US centric. Mm. Uh, definitely very well, uh, very uh, English language centric. Yes, I think that probably is just a reflection of where we grew up. Um, those are the films. We, a lot of these films are films that uh, certainly that you know I. I grew up by but watching when I was sort of a teenager or in my early twenties as I was kind of discovering films. And that is obviously the easy way in, even if you watch a lot of, uh, a lot of foreign language films as you and I both do, mm. it's obviously just an easier way in to, to kind of watch films in the language that you understand. Yeah, absolutely. I um, think if but... we were going for just films that we admired in kind of a slightly more kind of dispassionate way, there probably would be more foreign language on there. A less Caddyshack one would imagine. Oh no, that's got to be on there. That's like the keystone <laughs> yeah. of the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed myself immensely. That's um, But yeah, it's it's over. And now we have to think of a, another time-consuming project to do, which I'm sure we will. Um, and yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. Anyone who got through all ten parts, congratulations you. Uh, spotters badge um, and gold star in the post. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, then yeah, please subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a little review. Always nice. Uh, find us on Facebook, on Twitter, all that guff. Um, and yeah, uh, our next show will be our last one of the year. We're going to do our annual uh, end of the year roundup um, and also celebrate our third birthday, Ed. Yes, coming up, isn't it? Because our first episode dropped in sort of was like December 22nd. Or something of uh, two thousand and eleven. Eleven, yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, we'll be uh, we'll be kind of wrapping up the events of the year, um, and uh, yeah, having a, a fun look back at what we liked and and what we didn't like. Um, so yeah, until then, it's goodbye from me, and goodbye from me, and goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.